Hello, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast. Here we're all about playing with ways to navigate life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mortimer, a sound artist, songwriter and a slow coach. And I love poking and unpeeling the potential of gentleness in everyday life. Gentleness that stands with a firm back and a soft front, courageous and aware, patient and abundant, not forcing what needs to grow or rushing the things that require time. In this episode, I want to pick up on a theme that we recently explored in uh, The Haven, in our first uh, open cotter happening, where I uh, invited members to send in questions um, and topics that are you know, on their mind, things that they would enjoy a little bit of uh, hive mind support with, or they were just kind of interested to hear what other people uh, thought about things. Uh, one of the reasons I, I really love the concept of the cotter in the Haven, uh, which was inspired by my trip to uh, to Lapland last year, um, is the fact that it's a meeting place where anyone is welcome, a point of, of refuge, um, traditionally for uh, reindeer herders to take cover and rest in the wilderness. Um, it provides warmth, somewhere to sit, somewhere to eat if necessary. And if there are others in there, you might have a chat or just kind of be there uh, in stillness and in quiet presence together. There is no stage, no place for rank and order. It's a, a circular uh, place of of equality and equalness. And it makes for some great conversations um, in the context of the Haven that move in directions that really reflect uh, those who are there. It kind of takes on the identity of whatever is going to happen in that moment with uh, whoever is present in that place. Uh, And you can never predict what will give rise to aha moments and intriguing discoveries. But there is usually something that kind of hits the resonant button um, at some stage. And on this occasion, there were kind of two or three topics that converged and formed a, uh, a fun chemical reaction, <laughs> I suppose, that then uh, yeah led to a flow of, of helpful insights. And I, I really want to uh, just, yeah, share some of that with you in this episode and introduce the topics that hopefully wiggle our way um, around to, to bring them together in what I hope uh, will make some kind of coherent sense um, and provide some food for your thoughts and your own inner mullings um, in the uh, yeah the coming days and uh, week ahead. So it all starts with the difference between experimental and conceptual approaches to life. Uh, You may have heard me talk about this before. I first spoke about this after a conversation um, with Kendra Patterson on the theme of uh, late bloomers. Um, And just as a a quick recap, uh, so conceptual types, there's this kind of difference has been found between uh, people who think more conceptually and people who think more experimentally. That's, they're the labels that have been given to these uh, these kind of cognitive dispositions, I suppose. Um, and conceptual types have a clear picture of how they want things to look and they work deductively. So they know where they want to go, got a clear uh, plan that they can then um, use to, to help them get there in the most uh, efficient and effective way. So 
kind of driven by uh, the outcome. And experimental types start with a step and then build incrementally uh, forwards, often without a, a clear picture of where each step is going to uh, lead them, uh, certainly in the longer term. So they connect dots as they go. Uh, and their kind of discovery underpins their creativity as they work inductively. So they accumulate knowledge from experience and then integrate what they learn uh, and discover and then take that into the next step from that position. Uh, so, yeah, in a sense, the, f- the future emerges from the path, whereas for, for conceptual types, the future is imagined uh, and then it's worked towards um, from where they are at that moment. So for experimental types, uh, life unfolds with unexpected twists and turns. And that is what kind of brings it a sense of meaning, a a sense of joy uh, a lot of the time. And for conceptual types, life's twists and turns can actually cause frustration because they uh, create obstacles that slow them down uh, from getting to where they want to go when when they've kind of chosen that that path, that plan um, to get them there. Uh, so it's a very simplistic overview of those differences, I think. And, and there is uh, research that supports this idea. I really hope there's going to be uh, more done into this um, at the level of, uh, certainly at the level of huma- humanity uh, and of people, because it's a really fascinating, also massively important um, thing for, um, certainly for experimental types to to kind of grow in awareness and understanding and validation for the way that they operate. So it can sort of work with that in a positive way, um, rather than feeling like I, I think a lot of the time people who, who uh, are more experimental in their approach to life um, feel a bit more flaky and feel like there's something a, a bit wrong with the way that they um, operate. And we're going to explore some of that in this episode. Um, you know, it's not necessarily encouraged by the modern world, um, especially in, in the Western world, um, not least because it's, it's kind of difficult to contain measure and manage really you know experimental types are are often life's um, poets and painters and musicians and philosophers and artists um, moved by mystery and curiosity inspired by what could more than what should um, inspired by this and that more than this or that and so when we uh, talked about this a while ago uh, I used this question um, where do you see yourself in five years time as a, a a kind of good barometer for yeah where you sit uh, on that um, conceptual versus experimental maybe it's a continuum or a spectrum I, I'm not sure I don't think it would be a binary um, but yeah if you find that an easy and an exciting question to answer in concrete ways with a firm idea of of like what you want where you'll be how it's going to look. Um, that kind of probably indicates you're you're pretty conceptual in the way that you uh, engage with life. If, on the other hand, you hear that question, you feel a little bit sort of claustrophobic, but uh, trapped by it, unable to answer it, um, or trying to come up with the right answer to make the person asking it um, kind of go away and leave you alone. Um, you, you're probably more experimental in your orientation. If that is a question that you're like, I, literally, I have no ability to answer that in any kind of meaningful way um why does this make a difference um i think it's important because i i think it does have an impact on a lot of stuff um you know the way that we relate to ourselves um the way we uh, relate to our dreams and our endeavors and the projects that we 
uh, undertake and just day-to-day life in general our sense of um, mental well-being and okayness in the world you know it's okay to to be who you are to operate in the way that you operate in a world that squeezes us along narrow paths and and into um, conceptual boxes uh, from you know things like identity to career uh, personality types lifestyle genres you know all these things that constantly you know putting us under pressure to decide you know that that sense of this or that what are you how do you define yourself how are you identifying yourself Um, what box do you fit in all of that sort of stuff and so literally um, that that kind of decision making process to decide to cut off parts of ourselves that don't fit the concept that we are trying to squeeze ourselves into Um, and I think we're overrun by conceptual thinking in many areas of life Um, you know just the the whole concept of, of goals and targets and measures, these these things are uh, presented in ways that are very conceptual in nature, um, and it's it's ve- a lot a lot more rare to find um, experimental approaches to goals and and targets and measures uh, to be accommodated in conversations around them, and of course these things uh, and and conceptual thinking has a very useful place when it comes to. Uh, certainly making sure we can exist in a uh, as a large population in relative peace and abundance when it comes to um, you know creating and distributing materials and and resources uh, in a in a society and um, yeah in theory uh, that is Um, but what about as people you know is this really the only and best way um, that we can think of when it comes to making the most of our the kind of non-mechanized humanity um, we're using the the wisdom of insecurity at the moment by Alan Watts as our uh, haven summer read. So we're in the book club taking a a slow dive into it over the course of a few months. Um, and this week I read uh, this passage as I was preparing for one of the sessions. Um, uh, and in it, uh, Alan Watts says, the miracles of technology cause us to live in a hectic clockwork world that does violence to human biology, enabling us to do nothing but pursue the future faster and faster. Specialisation in verbiage, classification and mechanised thinking has put man out of touch with many of the marvellous powers of instinct which govern his body. It has furthermore made him feel utterly separate from the universe and his own me. A clock is a convenient device for arranging to meet a friend or for helping people do things together, although things of this kind happened long before they were invented. Clocks should not be smashed. They should be simply kept in their place. And they are very much out of place when we try to adapt our biological rhythms of eating, sleeping, evacuation, working and relaxing to their uniform circular rotation. Our slavery to these mechanical drill masters has gone so far and our whole culture is so involved in it that reform is a forlorn hope. Without them, civilization would collapse entirely. A less brainy culture would learn to synchronise its body rhythms rather than its clocks. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was a, a nice moment of like, oh, yes, two things really aligning here. Um, and... Yeah, it's just kind of a reminder to me that we have attached to linear ways of conceptualizing uh, so many things in a world that actually um, does work in cycles, seasons, phases, rhythms. Um, 
and the irony of the clock being the round uh, the round face, the uniform circular rotation that he describes. Um, but actually it's representing something which is, um, yeah, kind of l- more linear in the way that we uh, attach to it in practice than uh, rhythmic and uh, kind of repetitive in the, in the way that we were talking about uh, in the episode about rituals, you know, this idea of repetition and expectancy, um, a rhythm as a loop moving in sync to a beat um, and that kind of thing. So what are some of the common things that we might say and accept um, in modern life around kind of, you know, these conceptual assumptions that we make? Um, Always begin with the end in mind. That's a, a common one we hear a lot. But what does it really mean? You know, if life is a dance, a piece of music, a, a manifestation of rhythms and cycles, it doesn't always make sense to begin with the end in mind. Do you begin with the end of a song in mind? Do you begin with the end of the dance in mind? If you do, you're probably going to, uh, you know, not be very present and the dance is going to kind of not be particularly fluid and flowful. Begin with the end in mind is a tool for a specific moment when it's required. It's not a life philosophy. As a philosophy, all it would do is take us away from the present, take us away out of the dance, out of the song, out of the awareness of life as it's happening. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you come out on top. So this idea of, you know, winning being all that matters, but it is only if you count winning as success. Often think about the stories beneath the story of success, of the winning. You know, there's a reason in transactional analysis, a winning life story is not equated um, to success in the eyes of the world. You know, it doesn't necessarily equate to fame and fortune. A successful life story is about knowing what matters to you, having a sense of your values, a sense of uh, something more important Um, and living life in a way that reflects it and that being aligned together. Um, You know, we often we often kind of idolize the winners, don't we? We create stories around them, people who have achieved great things. Uh, We deify them, we paint them as heroes and saints. But then you hear from the people who really know these people or knew them and they kind of talk about what someone is really like. And sometimes that isn't a pretty picture. What if it does matter how you get there? Other things that denote a kind of conceptual, uh, the the kind of normalization of conceptual um, thinking. What are your ambitions? I don't really have any. Is that okay to say? What's your plan? Uh, Let's see how it goes. What do you do? All sorts of things. What do you want to be when you grow up? Mm, Me. What genre is your work? It's really impossible to describe. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? Give me a number and I'll let you know in five years' time. When will you be there? Just after I arrive. 
maybe these sound a little facetious. Of course, they would be very facetious, very uh, annoying in many contexts. But we do have such ingrained ways of conceptualizing what is normal, don't we? We pin knowing, planning, ambitions, all those kinds of things to, to value and worth as human beings. Like you need to know these things. You need to have a very clear uh, picture of all of this stuff in order to, to live a life of, you know, respect, respect for life, respect for other people, having those things to make an impact, uh, making the most of your life. These things are often um, aligned to having really clear uh, conceptualizations of this stuff. Um, obviously, I've taken that to an extreme there in those examples. Um, but I think our drive for control and certainty and outcome can cause us to lose sight of some really important things that can't be measured, controlled or produced through um, this kind of yeah mechanical way of approaching life. Productivity as well can, of course, be useful at times. But holding the world as a linear path, this straight line from the start to the finish, is not the only way of thinking about life. In fact, judging by the way the world is right now, I'd suggest it's a pretty unnatural way of being a lot of the time. It takes us out of the presence, away from deep creative flow and into a high frequency oscillating tone of anxious reactivity. Where we always have that feeling that we ought to be doing something, even when we're already doing something. Do you know that feeling? I do. <laughs> All too well. So I'd say this episode is for anyone who has never really known what they want to do, what they want to be when they grow up. Have you ever felt like uh, that's a bad thing and that you should and that it means you're not doing life properly if you don't? It's honestly not a concept that goes back all that far in human history. The idea of picking a path, let alone a path among millions of potential options, is kind of crazy. And the idea that we have to pick a path that's already been created, again, for experimental types, the path is a lot messier than that. In fact, it emerges through the movement as we step the plan is use what I have, where I am, take the next step forwards because that's all I have. Oh, and just a quick thought about imagination too. I've been thinking about how this impacts our ability to dream of a different future. And I know people say that, you know, in order to get out of the mess we're in, we need uh, big visions. And we could um, interpret that through the conceptual lens and say, you know, we've got into this mess by accepting things as they are and, and adapting to just things getting worse and worse uh, and not believing uh, in anything else, not having another vision, um, a positive vision for the future that we are working towards. Um, we need people who can imagine radically different possibilities, who have the motivation and charisma to take us there. Again, I think... Uh, we've seen this a lot already. I don't think that's, um, I think that's kind of wedded to uh, some of the issues that we have in our world right now. It's something to be wary of. It breeds utopian thinking. Um, and often the things that we imagine in that sense are either then 
they're they're either actually limited by current reality and you're sort of imagining different possibilities within a a, a current paradigm um compared with uh an experimental approach that might actually move us step by step towards a completely new paradigm a new way of seeing the world a new uh concept of reality itself um <laughs> without something too ridiculous um or we end up turning them into a reality that like require that requires your authoritarian tactics to get there so that that's sort of the danger of utopian thinking is that okay we eradicate this um particular group or this thing that's going on now and then we can finally reach this uh, this promised land um and again that's a pretty uh that's a pretty dangerous thing that we've seen throughout history um with some particularly devastating um consequences and so experimental imagination steps piece by piece bit by bit and can actually take us a lot further in the direction we want to go it can it can it can be even more imaginative than you know this idea that we have of of visionary people who can imagine this amazing different future it's like actually the imagination that comes through step by step um even if we can't articulate where we might be in five years time actually the imagination that will grow out of out of the step-by-step process um can be a lot more radical and a lot more um universally accepting as well than um something that we would uh, imagine as some sort of utopian uh distant thing um you know i think about the experience of play and how imagination is is what turns a simple game into something ridiculously kind of wild and weird down the line um if you allow it to evolve in in kind of its its natural ways i think about you know times i've played uh, with nephews and a game has um just sort of spiral to something crazy it starts as something very normal something very uh, small and simple and then you know you just you just end up engaging the imagination piece by piece uh, and you end up yeah somewhere completely mad um in a in a good way i mean you can also end up in mad places the old this is going to end in tears uh, is often uh, evoked in that situation as well uh, not with me and my nephews of course but like uh, yeah when kids are playing together and imaginations both uh, kind of come together and manifest things uh, as they as they bump off each other uh, and also as they collide and clash um, because what one person imagines is not quite the same as what another person imagines. But yeah, the the I don't know, the conceptual approach to play might have a more fixed idea of what the game is and where it should go and what what where it should end. Uh, and maybe that's helpful because it ends before the tears. Um, but there's, yeah, and also sort of maybe what everyone ought to learn as a result of playing the game. Um, and it can be frustrating to the conceptual person when people start playing wrong. Um, but there's, there is a time for that shift and that's different from the kid, um, say the kid, the adult, anyone who just wants to sabotage the game, um, for everyone, for other reasons, you know, we've all probably been involved in the situation. Maybe we've been that, that kid. Um, maybe we're just, you know, in a bit of a mood that day and I don't want to see you having fun. I'm going to, I'm going to kick over the, I don't know, the board or whatever whatever it is 
Um, but we've probably all uh, been subjected to somebody who's uh, who's like that as well. That's different. That is not, um, yeah, that is not kind of evolving the play. That's doing a big dump on the play. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make that point quickly. The inability to know what life is going to look like in five years' time. It's not a failure of imagination. Um, it's that actually we might have we just a completely different way of using and relating to our imagination as somebody who is able to uh, articulate that vision, really imagine, yeah, this is this is exactly what that's going to look like in five years' time. I know I can smell it, I can feel it, I can taste it, um, I can hear exactly what's going on and, and now I'm going to work towards it. Um, that is a type of imagination, but that just because you can't do that doesn't mean you, there's a failure of imagination. Imagination just works differently. Okay, so the next part of the puzzle that we were uh, playing with in the Haven is, is kind of underpinned, I would say, by the word ambition. Um, conceptual types have an obvious relationship with ambition. You know, they imagine getting somewhere they're not currently at. Their ambition is to get there. Um, how does ambition work for more experimental people? Um, I would say it's messier, for sure. It's difficult to articulate because the outcome is unknown at the start. You know, maybe you found yourself swept up in an amazing project that when you reach the end, you found people describing it as like ambitious. Perhaps you look at the journey you've been on and think, whoa, how, how have we got here? How the hell did I do that? Um, and you could not have imagined this point from back there when you started. It would have felt maybe too outlandish on the one hand. And on the other hand, it, exists in a blind spot it was beyond what you were able to imagine at the time behind a lot of other steps that had to occur in order for this to uh, kind of reveal itself as the the point where you uh, have ended up at this moment so if you're an experimental type that gives you a spark it gives you the energy the excitement knowing that you don't know where this is going to lead you don't know where uh, this might end up taking you that's kind of energizing and exciting to some degree um and if you're a conceptual type actually that might give you a feeling of of panic and exhaustion knowing that you don't know where and how this is going to go um and that's okay the, these differences are just differences neither bad or good or anything in between um you know these things to just recognize and accept uh, and notice the assumptions that come up about uh, people who are different. Maybe you wish you were more like them, or maybe you think they should be more like you because, you know, what? that's ridiculous. Of course you should be more uh, experimental, or of course you should be more conceptual. It doesn't make any sense. How, do you, how would you possibly get anything done if you don't imagine where you'd want to go and then make a plan to get there? Um, I should just acknowledge that thought and let it go and allow things to be as they are. Allow people to be as they are and trust the fact that actually we're, we're all different and we all work in different ways and that is that's kind of cool very cool in fact but what about when we need to be 
um, kind of operating in the other mould? Um, this is a, a question, again, we explored in the Cotter. Uh, we didn't nail any answers to it at all, but I want to hold it in mind as we explore um, these ideas, uh, uh, as we continue to explore these ideas in this episode. You know, an example might be sort of navigating a career uh, or a workplace or a job uh, when you have an experimental disposition. Um, you know, you need that kind of uh, productive repetition that we talked about um, in the previous episode. Um, but how do you maintain energy without getting burned out when you're sort of operating in that as an experimental person, having to operate in a, a more conceptual um, uh, uh, mode, mode or um, uh, or mold? A job can feel like treading water if you don't have a clear five-year plan, for example. If you don't know where you want to head through um, the corporate or company structures, uh, or on a particular career path, it's easy to slip into waiting mode in a world that doesn't really change all that much. And so you end up in this, you know, every day feels the same. You just sort of, it's Groundhog Day, that kind of thing. Um, and you potentially just become subject to the changes that are thrust upon you um, by the industry or by the company instead. Um, or you agree to a, to the promotion that's come up simply because, it's the next step and you want to feel like something is moving uh, in life. So a big part of this question is about awareness, I think, especially for experimental types to simply identify, you know, where is it that we get to flex the experimental muscles and what might we allow to remain as they are um, while we can flex it in that other area. Um, you know, I worked in a job for, for six years and as an undertaker um, where I had absolutely no aspirations to, to kind of move up through uh, the ranks. I didn't want to change my role. Um, even when I was sort of invited or encouraged to, I was like, no, I'm quite, I'm quite happy with this because I know this is, a, this is a concrete point of stability for me uh, as I do these other things um, that are allowing me to, to kind of follow this uh, experimental mode. And I know if I start changing um if I start changing roles and and moving through the ranks in my, in my job, that is actually going to take up so much energy and take up uh, so much of my kind of focus that actually the things that I really want to be um, growing and developing experimentally, uh, are not, I'm not going to have anything um, left in the tank for that. Um, you know, I'd meet with my uh, line manager frequently and we'd sort of do all the paperwork, go through uh, I don't know what quarterly goals or whatever and all my goals were just uh, keep doing what I'm doing uh, how will I know that I've succeeded I'll have kept doing what I'm, what I'm doing fortunately he was a he was a decent guy and he he tolerated that uh, and he got it he knew why I was there he he allowed it to be an anchor while I um, kind of moved in in other areas of my life and we'd talk about this idea of anchors um, in a bit because that came up uh, as well in our session um, but unless we have ways to nurture that part of us we we might end up making decisions that actually don't take us to where we want to go um, just because it makes some sense at some level beyond the influence of our own boundaries it might be that um, there are ways we can flex our experimental curiosities uh, within rigid roles too. You know, if we allow ourselves to imagine some creative possibilities within a, a job 
um, where we're, you know, this is, this is pretty stable. This is pretty, uh, it's not really going anywhere. But actually, if we're with people who aren't going to shut them down, we might be able to try things, uh, suggest ideas, see what happens um, and see where that leads ultimately. Um, and, you know, countless stories of, of people who have uh, done that in, in a job or in a business of just sort of, okay, I'm going to just flex this experimental part of me um, and, and try this thing. And that ends up just taking them down this completely different avenue that they would never uh, have predicted um, or known they wanted to go down because actually they didn't. <laughs> That's probably another part. Like I never knew I wanted to do this uh, because you didn't want to do that. Um, that desire has has come alive in you um, because of this other thing that has, has happened. Um, and And I suppose, yeah, acknowledging and becoming aware of that sort of thinking as well is, is really important. Because I think we have this tendency, don't we, to um, to turn things into, um, I don't know what the, the right word to describe it is, but that sort of, uh, it was meant to be thinking. And it's like, well, it's only meant to be because it is um, a lot of the time. I never realized this is what I wanted to do. That's because you, it wasn't something you wanted to do until it was. Um, and yeah, so that can happen within within these roles just sort of scratching an itch uh, though it might mean uh, or it might require piecing together some kind of pitch or proposal having some kind of sense of you know where where do I want this what do, what is this lo- looking like what does this uh, this idea what where does it go um, or what's the end point of it um, and even that can be hard if you're like me and as soon as you hit the go button on a project within minutes as you start working on it the whole thing can change um but yeah that's something we just have to sort of figure out um and i heard the the description art life which other than making uh the song park life by blur go round in my head for the rest of the day uh i thought was a lovely way of distinguishing that exploratory part of life um that's out of reach of uh the the kind of influence and demands of capital and productivity, the life we live for love, not material necessity. Um, and it might be that this is where we get to spend our experimental energy and give other parts of ourselves to more concrete and conceptual models, whether that's, you know, building a business, working in a job or doing whatever it is that is driven by something that's maybe slightly beyond our own uh, control or, or beyond what we would necessarily choose if we could uh you know design life in the perfect way you know, this is all about sort of compromise and and figuring out you know how to oscillate between these things so i want to get into uh, ambition um properly uh, recently the uh, the anniversary of the release of one of my albums uh, the eponymous Atlam Schema LP, which came out on the 13th, well, officially on the 14th of June, 2009. Uh, but we did a uh, the, the launch show on the 13th of June. And I was reflecting on it um, recently as that anniversary came round. Um, I was like, 14 years, ridiculous. But I went back to the uh, the video archive. I found the, the old DVD that I'd created of the, uh, the launch show. Um, and so this this launch 
I'd got a band together. We performed the whole album in full uh, from start to finish in, in one of my favourite cinemas in the world, uh, movie theatres, Harbour Lights Picture House in Southampton. Um, and yeah, so I released the the video of the performance in full for the first time uh, this year. There were, there were a few videos or a few songs from it um, that were on my YouTube channel before, but I thought oh, I'm going to put it all up because it, there's something, yeah, something quite nice about just seeing the whole thing, the flow of the whole thing. And I think when when I first put it out, like there was a restriction on the amount of um, the length of videos that you could put on YouTube. And also I wanted people to buy the DVD. So, you know, that just it was a different world back then. It was a totally different world back then. Uh, DVDs. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, it was strange watching the, a young me do something like that. I was thinking, like, fair play. I, he feels like he's, he, I, I'm kind of, I, I get that that's me on the screen, but it also feels like someone else. Um, and yeah, so it was, a, it was a really interesting experience going back and uh, diving into that. And and as I was g- diving into it, I, would, I found a, a review for the album um, that I remember from the time I'd, I'd kind of used a clip from it um, for a while in, in press stuff. Um, but it was funny to go back and read the entire thing. Uh, so it said it was from New Sound Wales, uh, which is an online publication. It said, this is an ambitious, almost audacious debut from Outlam Schema. Uh, it wasn't actually my debut. I'm not sure what gave them, gave them that impression, but, you know, we'll let that slide. Uh, back in the mid 80s, this would have been called Big Music, full of ideas, aspiration and emotion. The album has an incredible depth and variety, some memorable songs, and it sounds excellent. Hold On could easily be a hit single if it got any airplay. And elsewhere, I Can is a moving story of love, lost and uh, of lost love and regret. This is the sort of album that is either going to disappear without trace and be picked up on in 20 years' time as a lost classic, or it might just make its way onto this year's Mercury Prize list. Either way, give it a listen now. You will be intrigued and impressed. Um, so a very, very nice review, a lovely review. Uh, I mean, reading it now, I'm kind of excited about the fact that it's only six years until it gets picked up as a lost classic. Also slightly terrified because when that <laughs> first came out, 20 years, that felt like a, yeah, a very, very long time. Um, but yeah, so when's that going to be? Where are we? So 2000 and, uh, 2029, I believe it's due to become a, a lost classic. Uh, so hopefully it becomes a found classic, I suppose, because it would still be a lost classic if nobody actually finds it. Um, so picked up on, someone's got to pick up on it. Anyway, that's that's not what I want to talk about. Um, yeah, I, it, this review really set me off um, on a, a, a bit of a reflective moment around ambition. And I shared a post um in the haven which yeah i'll read out some of that uh because it probably articulates what i'm gonna try and say in ways that i'm not sure i'm going to be able to um by just talking um reviews are strange to read it's like someone is looking at you through soundproof glass and commenting on why uh, and what they see to an audience their side 
It feels both alien and personal to read someone's interpretation, understanding and opinion of something that's been such a big part of your life. A judgment on something that passes through their fingers and goes out alongside 20 other reviews that week. I'm sure the writer will have long forgotten his words and my album, but it's remained with me for over a decade. Uh, I might be wrong, but I'm not sure ambitious or audacious are words anyone would use to describe me as a person. So this difference between creator and created intrigues me. Can we do ambitious things without being ambitious people? What does it mean to have ambition? I didn't set out to create anything ambitious or audacious. I rarely do. I never do. But things can spiral occasionally. Once the ideas start gathering momentum, things can get a little out of hand. This kind of ambition doesn't feel ambitious to me at least not in the way I think of ambition. It's not driven by a desire to achieve or accomplish. It's not driven by the outcome. It emerges from the question, what if? Maybe this is the difference between the conceptual and experimental modes of being. To me, ambition denotes a sense of knowing where you want to end up. Big dreams, big aspirations, having the drive and determination to make the idea a reality. But in my case, an ambitious album is the result of having no clue where it was going to lead. People say you should set ambitious goals in order to grow. However, almost every ambitious goal I've ever set is a goal I've not reached. After a while, they can feel a bit futile and stagnant, or I simply forget about them. How do you get stuff done if you don't set big goals? Maybe you don't. Perhaps that's the risk, but maybe letting go of goals is the freedom you need to follow intuitive creative knowing, where energy, momentum and spirit emerge from the inside out. Not the dream of having, achieving or getting, but of experimenting, playing, creating, invoking the spontaneous power of yes and. The album launch show, which ended up working surprisingly well, came together as a unique experience. Not because I wanted to put on a weird event, but because no one stopped it from turning into one. It would be cool to do the album launch show at Harbour Lights. I like it there. Hmm. People could dress up. Yeah, and we could film it. Yeah, and I'll produce a video of me driving around Hampshire that we can show on the big screen. Yeah, and then I'll create a DVD and sell it. Yeah, you get the point <laughs> it was all these things i i don't think it was the things that got added that turned it into a memorable event you know people who were there still talk to me about this the magic source came from the constraints and the limits i had no money and there are obvious logistical issues around borrowing a cinema auditorium on a saturday so we agreed to be out by 1 p.m they've they had movies to show under those conditions you have a load of people attending the cinema dressed in cocktail dresses and suits at 11am on a hot Saturday morning in June. If I'd really paused to consider how ridiculous it was, I would probably have bottled it. And thanks to the trust and confidence from those at Harbour Lights and those in the band and those making the whole thing happen with me, I never stopped to think it was too ambitious or strange. If someone had planted the seed of doubt, again. I think I would have bottled it. 
I didn't have belief in my vision. I just thought it would be funny. Is that what drives me on? Funny? Hmm, maybe. Is that enough? Probably not. There's something else that drives me too. Is it ambition? Perhaps in some way, by some definition. I do have little ambitions, little goals, little things I want to explore and finish and try. But I'm not ambitious or audacious. I don't set out to create big things. They just unfold in my hands. My mind starts to say, ooh, and then maybe I could dot, dot, dot. And I need to bring myself back to earth, to a point, to the point of the next step in the right direction. Maybe it's to inquire about the possibility of booking a movie screen for a gig. I'll figure out the rest from there. I had a thought about confidence and experience. I've always assumed that confidence grows as we gain the experience. You can draw on what happened as evidence that you can do something again. But I'm not sure it's that simple or straightforward. I kind of envy my naive younger self. It's funny how naivety can sometimes move things forward in positive ways. If I knew then what I know now about how much it would take, I don't think I'd do it. Or would I? I mean, that's an impossibly hypothetical question to answer. Maybe I won't do exactly the same thing again, but I'll do something. Of course I will. I can't wait to see what. Maybe confidence is just knowing that whatever happens and whatever I agree to with myself, it will work out in whatever way it needs to. And no matter what happens, there's always something I could choose to do, even if that choice is to let it go and move on to something else. So, yeah, I mean, even thinking about the Haven itself, again, it's nine years old this month as I'm recording this. I can't believe that. Um, and as a project, it looks pretty ambitious. Um, quite the job to set up and create. If you're going to imagine it from scratch, I think it would be very difficult. Um, but I had absolutely no idea it would be what it is now when I first started it. You know, my ambition wasn't even to to build a a standalone membership site. I just wanted to create a private space for uh, introverted and highly sensitive people to connect with themselves and one another and grow in confidence through creativity and the exploration of ideas. And that, I suppose, is still at the fundamental heart of it. Um, but I don't think that's not an ambition. I wouldn't describe it as an ambition anyway. It's, a, I guess, a, a gentle vision. It grows from foundational values that, that I have within me, I suppose. Um, and it takes me on little adventures that sometimes end up developing into things that look quite ambitious. You know, the Return to Serenity Island course, another such example. Uh, you know, what if I, uh, yeah, maybe I'll just add a meditation in each module. You know, that was a question or a uh, an idea um, that has actually opened up a whole new world for me um, that I'm really enjoying now uh, as we speak. Uh, it kind of began my journey to ambient instrumental comp- composing um, as well as growing the library of narrative soundscapes that I've uh, been creating since then. Um, and again, if you look at that, 
looks like quite an ambitious project, but in reality, it's just a path that I kept walking down and seeing what I see, <laughs> seeing what I saw, saying yes along the way to myself with another little, oh yeah, that might be fun. Uh, yeah, that'd be funny. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It's weird what happens. So, conceptual thinking might put us into boxes and apply labels so it can categorise us more easily. Great. Of course, that's necessary in a huge number of contexts. However, it becomes a problem when we allow those boxes and labels to define us and speak for us. Or when we use them to speak for other people. It can become kind of lazy and reductionistic. Stereotypes, generalities and isms of every kind. I loved what Chris Packham said at the start of his um, two-part BBC series, Inside Our Autistic Minds. And he said, you know, if you've, it, it's been said, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. The point being, autism as a label doesn't tell you anything about the character, the challenges, the particularities of the individual and their individual situation. We can't assume or expect to know a person based on these kinds of labels. In our Haven Cotter session, we thought about how so much of society seems increasingly set up to make it harder to be experimental when it comes to relating to other people. And while this can sometimes come from an important place of uh, things like safeguarding, uh, sometimes rather than creating conditions for flourishing, it's, it becomes easier to just set a culture that doesn't do anything creative because creative is too risky. Someone who works with young people shared frustrations about how elements of paperwork, red tape, those kinds of things make it impossible to, to, to give people what they truly need as individuals in the moment that they need them. Everyone feels like they're part of a process, a system, a machine. You know, whether it's the, the young person or the person kind of caring for them. Rather than a community, a vibrant and an alive society. What if this actually just exacerbates the issue? You know, so many of these things stem from feeling alienated, alone, separate from other people, separate within ourselves, separate from a sense of meaning. And I think at some level we know this. Yet our approach to solving the problems often either just happens at, at a surface or a symptomatic level. We try and kind of paper over the cracks um, or it creates a whole new problem altogether. So I guess what I'm saying here is that when we're too conceptually driven, that is to say when we lose our capacity for common sense and initiative and, and trust in uh, creative experimentation, i.e. creativity as uncertainty and bringing something new and um, like, you know, uncertain in into the world, to the table. Not like the kind of creativity that's often co-opted by the corporate arena. You know, think outside the box, but only the box inside the bigger box. Stay inside the big box. And so that box inside the bigger box is the one that 
comes from turning descriptions into prescriptions. And this is what, you know, authors of management and leadership books are often really good at, you know, doing, helping managers do. I notice it all the time. You know, we study the creative, innovative approach that somebody has taken, something amazing that someone's done in solving a problem or leading a team or building something. We're like, yeah, this this is a, a absolutely amazing example of of the of what this person's done. And so then we we take what they've done, uh, we take the way they've done it, and we distill that into seven points and then prescribe the medicine <laughs> to other people. Um, and we say, you know, this is the way such and such achieved their success with whatever it is. This is the the whoever model of leadership. This is blah, blah, blah. Um, and rather than asking, you know, what can I do with this? You know, I'll take this example as, a, as an inspiration example. You know, what can I do with that? How can I, um, you know, take some of what they've done and integrate it into my own way of being? We're encouraged instead to ask, you know, how do I do what they did? And how will we as a company do what they did? How will we then change our processes, change our systems to reflect this and to to make sure that we're following this model? Um, And this can be hugely frustrating for people in organisations. You know, as we discovered this in the Haven Cotter, um, that there were people in that group who were hugely creative, massively impactful, um, and really just imaginative, amazing human beings. Um, but they're being led by uh, conceptual types who, you know, if it's not taught in a model, if it's not from the workshop, the training workshop, it's not right. It's not what we do. Um, even if the workshop training is highlighting a case study of someone who succeeded by going against the status quo. Um, and yeah, this can just be a real source of frustration and ultimately cynicism as well um and and kind of just you know losing really losing the uh, the creative power and potential of people um who are already you know primed for this kind of thing they don't need to be given a model to follow um we need to follow them and learn from them um and i'm sure you've probably encountered situations like this uh, if you work in any kind of uh, corporate, maybe public sector environment, the the kind of the stifling of the creativity uh, in the name of creativity is one of the most infuriating things. Um, and if you haven't encountered a situation like that, you you might be part of causing one. Uh, I'm kidding, kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, all right. I think we need to think about drawing this to a close. Um, where are we going to land? Uh, this again, my inability to conclude succinctly experimental i mean i just want to go back in and explore some of these ideas more uh but i won't don't worry not here anyway um i think i want to talk about anchors i alluded to them earlier i mentioned them um when talking about how sometimes our uh, art life art life is given her freedom by allowing something concrete to keep us kind of stable and, and sturdy um in a, as a kind of parallel or kind of undergirding um, safety structure or whatever. Um, there was a, another question in our open cotter about this concept of, of anchoring. We talked about it in our adventure theme last year. Um, and if you've been a long time listener of the podcast, you, you might have heard me discuss it 
just before uh, we started from episode one again. Uh, I think it was like episode 360-something of the old form. Uh, if you are a new listener, um, yeah, there were there were a lot of episodes. I'd been doing the podcast for, for many, many years. Um, but, I, it, yeah, it felt like, I don't know, I'm not going to go into that now. But I'm glad I made the decision that I made um, and that we're now on whatever episode we are, 20-something. Um, but yeah, I was inspired by this uh, this quote that I read from The Minimalists, um, where I think it was from one of their books. And, it, and they said, an anchor keeps a vessel at bay, planted in the harbour, unable to explore the freedom of the sea. And I found this just a really fascinating way of, um, yeah, sort of conceptualising, framing the idea of an anchor, keeping a vessel at bay, planted in the harbour, unable to explore um, the freedom of the sea. Um, and so the image of anchors is interesting to consider in the context of adventures, what I wrote last year. The things and places to which we are anchored really matter when it comes to building a life that reflects the visions, the values and the de desires that we have for our lives. I've been reflecting on this recently and wonder if there is a difference between the anchors and the things to which we become anchored. The minimalists go on to say, we discovered big anchors, debt, bad relationships, etc. And small anchors, superfluous bills, material possessions, etc. And in time, we eliminated the vast majority of those anchors one by one. And so that kind of gives, <laughs> gives the context of how they're describing anchors as things that are, are sort of weighing them down, things that have uh, become, yeah, negative forces that stop them from being able to explore the freedom of the sea. Um, and I think that it come out like they, they said, you know, we, we often describe people as, as anchored. We describe it as a positive thing. You know, it means they're stable and grounded. Um, and so they were kind of pushing back against this a little bit in a nice mis mischievous way uh, to say, you know, a, an anchored person in the context of stuff, in the context of um, what they write about and talk about in minimalism uh, is how you become stuck in place by all the things um, that keep you there. And it might not necessarily uh, be a choice you'd make if you had full um, f the full freedom to to make the choice to to articulate what what it is that you would want to do. Um, so if we take that and come to a point in the middle, we find a, a few ways of I think thinking about it. So if we consider it in the context of our life circumstances um, or contentment in a situation or just general well-being, uh, we might distinguish between being um, safely anchored. So securely integrated and committed to something or uh, somewhere where we find a real sense of, of meaning and connection and, and flow in life. We might be safely unanchored, uh, which is, I think, what they're describing there. You know, the freedom to explore, to discover, uh, to grow as people um, because we're, 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 we're able to kind of go with the flow, so to speak, not needing to worry about ending up somewhere new because ending up somewhere new is part of that growth um, we might be unsafely anchored which again that's kind of what they're talking about 
whether it's being trapped, stuck, unable to let go, being held on to by something that isn't helping us grow, being weighed down, being tethered um, to something that we wouldn't choose to be tethered to if we had uh, control of that situation. And then unsafely unanchored. So kind of an aimless drift without um, appropriate resources. So it might be a a sense of panic mode or or simply kind of giving up because there's no obvious way to get to to dry land. We kind of look around us and it's we're we're untethered with we're drifting, we're floating, but there's nothing um, to to help us sort of get to where we uh, would be able to. Uh, yeah, get a, a firm footing again. And so to take this further, we might see those four positions in the context of uh, some foundational bedrocks in our lives. Um, so these are, uh, just as an example, place. So we might be anchored or unanchored to place, physical environments. People, you know, our relationships, there'll be people we feel anchored to um, and people that we Uh, feel like we've become unanchored from you know and that's going to have different uh a different different impacts on our lives and and we would probably have different desires depending on what what that is um projects so our occupations things that we spend our time doing this would include work and our career you know what are we anchored to um and yeah what are we unanchored to um that we would like to be anchored to maybe or what does being unanchored from uh, within a project being unanchored uh, in an experimental sense um what does that give us the freedom to explore um then philosophy so i guess our personal values and our ability to uh, live in in sync with how we see the world how we how we want to uh bring meaning to the world and that kind of thing you know are we are we anchored to that um are we unanchored from that um and you know is that a safe or unsafe thing and then person or kind of personality our sense of um self-awareness our uh knowledge of of who we are and um you know how we are uh responding within um situations in life and that kind of thing or we feel do we feel that sense of anchored in ourselves um and you know do we feel limited by that do we feel burdened by that sense of who we are are we you know burdened by labels and the things that we've learned about you know for example high sensitivity or introversion and actually that those things that we've learned about ourselves are are anchoring us in an unhelpful way. They're kind of determining how we think of ourselves rather than being useful um, and, um, yeah, kind of teaching us, giving us awareness that is um, is helpful for our growth. Um, so for each one, kind of think about whether you're safely anchored, self safely unanchored, unsafely anchored, or unsafely unanchored, um, and I'd yeah encourage you to spend some time reflecting on them if if that appeals to you. Um, if you'd like to talk it through with me and spend a bit longer on it, I would love to invite you to book a pick the lock um, 
coaching session, uh, kind of perfect. The one-off uh, choose your own price uh, sessions are, are great for this kind of thing. You know, we can take those foundational bedrocks, we can hold them up against how um, how you're anchored or unanchored right now and think about what would need to shift for you to be in a position that's more desirable to you, that's uh, maybe more uh, appropriate to how things are. So if that sounds good, I, I'll pop a link in the show notes. You can you can book a, a call with me. That'd be great if that would be helpful. Um, it's worth stating too that anchors are not permanent. You know, our relationship with anchors in this sense um, and with all of those things, with place, with people, with uh, who we are, our personality, our philosophy, the projects that we undertake and all of that sort of stuff. There are going to be times where that anchoring and unanchoring looks different. And so, you know, a safe anchor um, can become an unsafe anchor if we come to rely on it or it keeps us tethered to something that no longer um kind of is no longer where we um, want or need to be and like with uh, you know one of my favorite metaphors uh, of the solid 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 rocket boosters uh, you've probably heard me talk about them before um, an anchor is like that like a label like I just mentioned it's kind of useful until it's not rocket boosters are necessary for launching a space shuttle um, you know they're absolutely vital they get the get the space shuttle up into space um, but once it reaches its orbiting height, they've got to be jettisoned. They've got to be let go, um, released off the side. You know, they've done their job. And what's more, if they aren't jettisoned, they become uh, an excess dead weight that's actually going to bring the shuttle back down to Earth. Yeah, so just to finish pick up on that word safety uh, it's one that comes up again and again in the world generally isn't it and we touched on it in our uh, concert session again i think the biggest aha moment of the entire session uh, or one of them for me was around the difference in safety between conceptual and experimental types um that's probably a great place to conclude this episode um you know a number of people in our in that meeting who who resonate with being experimental um in in their kind of approach to life um, and when we talked about constraints we realized something interesting um, in relation to uh, the story I told about the, the the album launch show and the fact that there were certain constraints that actually um, didn't hold me back but provided a sense of optimism and connection to to a sense of faith within it you know and actually it's the constraints that that provide um, the the focus for the steps, the next step. You know, perhaps more naturally, making the most of the situation when things don't go to plan. It's like, okay, I can adapt. I can move with this. I've got something to kind of get my teeth into here, uh, and that can feel quite exciting um, on occasion. Whereas for incredibly conceptual types, if things don't go to plan, that kind of puts a spanner in the works and it could jeopardize everything. It's like, well, if it can't happen how I wanted it to happen, it's not going to happen at all. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, quite different from the, well, if it's not going to happen how I thought it was going to happen, let's make it happen in a different way. Um, or let's not make it happen, but let's change what's going to happen. And that's great. Like it's actually, this is going to be better. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and so as an example, in the context of ambition, uh, you know, experimental types 
do amazingly ambitious things and create incredible bodies of work because they keep growing through the limits they encounter. The conceptual types identify an ambition from the outset and work towards the limits they set. Um, so this is a case of ambition as a limit versus ambitions through the limit. Um, so I, I hope that makes sense. I kind of rushed through that. Um, but yeah, this idea that experimental types, um, they grow through the limits that they encounter, the, the limits that just emerge and they provide this next stepping stone to work with conceptual type that kind of envisaging of the future that five-year plan that really is the they're setting the limit they're saying this is the plan that's the five-year plan like um and so yeah ambition ambition is the limit so the limit is the ambition that's the thing that they're working towards um whereas um yeah you, you kind of the for the experimental type it might be oh that was a very ambitious project but the ambitions are kind of these little mini moments that kind of pushed through the limits that they meet on the way um i don't know if i explained that any more clearly that second time but um there we have it <laughs> we've uh, i think we've more or less kept on task there uh we've definitely gone to some different places on the way um, but I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do let me know if anything has resonated in particular with you. Um, and as I said, if you do want to talk about any of it, um, please feel free to book a pick the lock uh, session. They are choose your price. So even if you're not in a um, financially flowing place right now, uh, however you might describe it, I don't want you to miss out. I, I really don't like that coaching can sometimes feel like the preserve of those who have um, enough excess money to afford it. Um, because I think everybody actually is, is such good support and help. You know, people, everyone needs help organizing thoughts and reflecting on challenges and desires um, from time to time. Um, and there's just something really helpful about a coaching conversation. You can just, yeah, that's what we call it, unpick the lock, because it can just create a little a breakthrough as you hear things reflected back and, um, I ask questions and that kind of thing uh, around an area that, yeah, maybe it's frustrating you uh, or you, you want to look at those um, those anchors in particular um, that I've talked about today. So that's why these sessions to me are a really important part of what I offer and why um, I want to um, continue being able to offer them. So hopefully that will um, continue way into the future. So book one if you uh, think that would be useful to you. And um, yeah, come and join us in the Haven if you're not already a member. It'd be really great to have you in there with us. Um, it's always so lovely to connect with uh, different people and see a range of faces pop in at different happenings. Um, you know, you don't have to attend everything. You don't have to attend anything. You can just come and hang out and uh, watch replays and, and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, if if you'd like to connect with and be around other gentle rebels reflecting on things like we've been discussing in this episode for example um there's forums there as well um and the cotter conversations uh, or maybe you simply just want somewhere away from the just craziness and the noise of life uh, then come and check it out the dash haven.co um, again there'll be a link in the show notes uh, if you want to find out more okay well i'm going to be back again 
soon for another episode of the Gentle Rebel Podcast. Until then, do remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. Take care. Bye-bye.